You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. My name is Ian. My name is Eleanor. And what are we going to be talking about this week, Eleanor? Well, we're going to talk about beauty again. Again? Yes, because this is our first two-parter. And and this is the first time we've done the second part of a two-parter. I know, right? It's exciting. It it is a year of firsts (laughs) for us. Yeah. Uh, We're going to have a guest as well. Mm -hmm. Who are we going to have? We're going to have Simon Watt, who Ah. is a biologist, a stand-up comedian. And we're going to talk about ugly animals. Very good. So that's fun. But first. But first. But is it not true that the ugliest animals are us? Uh, mm. Yeah. Uh. That's, uh, that's a position you can recycle in our episode on viruses, probably. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Last time we talked about how things like equations and theories are beautiful, mm-hmm. right? So these things that are abstract and rational and elegant or simple or um, symmetrical, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, very high level beauty. This time we're going to talk about things that are a bit more democratically beautiful. Okay. Um, so things that you don't need a PhD in particle physics to see as beautiful. <laughs> well, I'm very glad we were able to get Sabine to explain some things to us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was very grateful for someone else to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in this case, I think we can all appreciate the beauty of what we're going to talk about. So it's going to be things like landscape and, you know, nucleic acids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's start with a bit of good old aesthetics. Okay. You say that as if I should know a specific meaning of that word. Because um, I, I know, I think I have an idea of what aesthetics are. But when you say good old, <laughs> it just makes me think, hmm, Eleanor is thinking of something specific here. What, what is aesthetics? I think it's how things that. look. Yes. The, um, the appearance of things. Yes. In philosophy, it assumes a different meaning. Okay. So in philosophy... That is typical, by the way. Yeah, I know. We're terrible at this. <laughs> the other day I was reading a philosophy of information thing and they were talking about entropy and the author was like, yeah, but not entropy entropy, more like other entropy. And I was like, mate, <laughs> this is not helping. Just just come up with a word. <laughs> but anyway, aesthetics in philosophy is the discipline that deals with beauty and aesthetic judgments. It doesn't necessarily have to do with images. So you can talk about aesthetics also for uh, music or literature. It's anything that has to do with judgments of whether something is beautiful or ugly. Okay. So you can say the word is beautiful, right? Uh, For instance, I really like velvet. Mm. I think it's a beautiful word. Um, I quite like the Italian word vongole. There you go. That's lovely. Mm. Yeah. It it means clams. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. so that's an aesthetic judgment in, in philosophical terms. Also in culinary terms. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so in uh, Immanuel Kant's aesthetics, so Immanuel Kant, I think we kind of know who he was, um, so philosopher in the sort of Enlightenment era, German philosopher, huge. So he made this, this distinction between pure and impure beauty. 
pure beauty is a beauty that is not derived from emotional attachment or the satisfaction of the senses. Meaning, good-looking food is in pure beauty because it's something that you think it's good-looking because it looks appetizing, right? So mm -hmm. it's something that could satisfy your senses in okay. that way. A sexy person, also in pure beauty, because you're looking at them and you're not going, ooh, I love the proportions uh, of their eyebrows. You're going, I want to get in those pants, right? Mm -hmm. so in pure beauty. The fragrance from Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> Satisfy your senses. Lovely. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, basically, whatever you find on Instagram. Right, okay. That's in pure beauty. Isn't Kant making a bit of a judgment there about like things that we like? Yeah. Like, isn't that a little unfair? You know, just because I like the smell of fish and chips. Yeah. Why must that be impure beauty? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay. That is because in Kant's approach, rationality is superior to imagination. Right, okay. Where imagination has to do with coming up with stuff, but also with the senses. So um, that's what generates emotions and feelings and all those soft and cuddly things. Which are rubbish. They are absolutely rubbish. You know what's great? You know what we like? Cold, hard, mechanical logic. Exactly. We like rationality. Okay. So anything that is irrational to Kant is somewhat inferior. Okay. So pure is everything else that is not something that has to do with the satisfaction of desires. So basically, everything that we talked about in the last episode, so like the beauty of a theory doesn't have to do with the fact that that theory has got it going for it. It's more like we recognise a harmony and uniformity or symmetry or elegance. So it's an intellectualized way of looking at the world, right? It's what reason thinks is beautiful okay so it's more cold and abstract if, if it makes okay. sense it's actually quite hard to pin that down because Kant himself uses examples that are a bit ambiguous so he says that for, for instance a, a geometric pattern that's pure beauty because okay. it doesn't represent anything. It's just beautiful to look at, right? It, it might be um, symmetrical or, not, or like a nice repetition of a motif. In terms of music, he says that music without text is pure beauty. Well, music with text, so with lyrics, okay. is impure. Because I assume because with lyrics, you can talk about things like uh, love and emotions while with instruments you can't, which is not quite true, I think. I think Kant would have been a big fan of ambient yes. music, uh, which I guess started in the early 70s, perhaps, but kind of got bigger towards late 70s and, and onwards, which I think, if I understand correctly, was a an attempt to try and make sounds that didn't sound like any existing instrument mm. so as to remove the kind of when you used a saxophone it brought all this sort of context with it mm -hmm. you use a saxophone all of a sudden it sounds a bit like blues 
So the ambient stuff, and Brian Eno did a lot of work on this, the ambient stuff was to try and remove that stuff that was being brought along with it and just create this kind of music that was pure... But I think it was about pure emotion, so mm. that's what I think anyway, and, and pure feeling without the kind of the, all this baggage that existing instruments had. But I think Kant would have liked that 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 approach. Yeah, and I think the way I'm interpreting it is he liked it because he would have liked it because it felt disembodied, right? If you can't, you know, you say if you use a saxophone, there's a context that comes with it. <laughs> well, if it's not a real instrument, it's basically a disembodied sound or something like that. Yeah. Or it sounds like, obviously all sounds are embodied. You can't make a sound without um, matter. Um, mm. But I think that's what he was getting at. It makes me think about when I was um, a very cool 12-year-old um, <laughs> learning classical music and medieval singing, uh, true story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like we were told to sing without our breathing being uh, noticeable because it had to sound as if it was a sound that came out of nowhere, right? Right. While nowadays, a lot of, uh, you know, folk singers or pop singers or whatever do put that breathiness in it. So they go like, <gasps> so that thing, Kant would have gone, no, 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 you need to sound like you don't really have a throat. Mm-hmm. Right. He would have really hated Sam Smith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also Kate Fire. Mm. You know. So, yeah. So anything lo-fi, probably, <laughs> he wouldn't like, mm-hmm. I would assume. Yeah. So I have a question about this. So Kant has, he's got these impure ones, and he's got these pure ones, and he's saying that the smell of fish and chips, oh, it's all about, like, senses and emotions and all the all the beauty of it is being put onto it by people, whereas this beautiful geometric flower that, or this equation that's pure beauty and the beauty is inherent in it. But surely both of these kinds of beauty are being filtered through our brains. So, like, isn't that a bit of a weird distinction to make? It's still us people making the judgment. But it's two different faculties. So right. you have the faculty of reason and you have the faculty of imagination and they are different. And one of them is just better than the other and that is rationality because it allows you to know things in a certain way. Um, Disclaimer, Kant's words, not yours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, there was the spirit of the Enlightenment. It was this idea that rationality, neutrality, objectivity were the things that would get you further in terms of knowing things, Mm -hmm. right? And I suspect that there is also an inheritance of Descartes that had this idea of the separation between mind and body um, that were connected somehow, but they were two uh, different substances. So one of the big problems in philosophy of mind at the time that in part continues to this day even though I think it's dumb, but that's for another day, is, um, <laughs> is you know, you have this um, mind substance and this body substance, and how do they connect to each other? How does a mind that is immaterial move a body that is material? So 
the idea that what is rational is what is in this immaterial realm, while anything that connects to the body is somewhat fundamentally different. Also, one thing that I should uh, I should make a note here. So, Kant never actually said that equations are beautiful. Okay. That's my extrapolation. So I'm just I'm just gonna put that out there okay. before someone gets upset. He did say that what was beautiful about science was the process of coming up with a theory. So the beauty there was people actually using the faculty of reason in order to uncover a truth. Okay. And that was beautiful to him. So even though it was a, a, a human process, a people process, because it was based on rationality, it was he considered it to be pure. And okay. beautiful, exactly. So yeah, so that's basically what it is. There's another concept that sort of rests on these two that is also Kantian, and it's also very important to us, and it's going to be important from now on in this episode. And that is the concept of the sublime. So sublime is something, so sublime applies to an object of our appreciation. And it's something that is so powerful, so majestic, so huge, that we can't comprehend it with our imagination, but only with our reason. So something that you can't maybe even take in with your senses, because imagination includes the senses as well, right? So let's say uh, a giant mountain range or space. You know, you can't fully appreciate that with your senses. And mm-hmm. so you you have this sort of wonder that is inspired in, mm-hmm. in, into you, right? Or um, Jeff Bezos's wealth. Exactly, yes. <laughs> it's just like... No, no no single human brain can comprehend how much money Jeff Bezos has. Though rather than inspiring wonder in me, it does tend to inspire horror. Yeah. But it's inspiring things. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> the sublime wealth of Jeff Bezos. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's another concept that we're going to pocket for later on. Okay. One good way to think about how these categories emerge in science is to think about conservation. So we have a planet. Some of us are trying to preserve it and take care of it. Some of us are not, such as... (coughs) Jeff Bezos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In order to justify the huge effort that conservation takes, people have come up with different arguments. One of them being that we should preserve Earth because it nourishes human life. So you can say it's useful to us, so we should keep it. You can say that it's because it has inherent value and was here before us. So who are we to destroy it? But one of the defences of conservation comes from the fact that nature is intrinsically beautiful. You can think about it in terms of pure, you know, visual aesthetics, of course, but also in, in a slightly deeper sense. So in terms of the relationships between organisms and ecosystems, um, the richness and diversity of life, you know, the harmony of Earth as an organic whole. That's something that can be beautiful and awe-inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about complexity and balance, somewhat. 
A strong defensive disposition came from philosopher George Edward Moore, who was a chap who taught in Cambridge on the first during the first half of the 20th century. Cambridge, UK. So basically, his argument goes more or less like this. Imagine we have two worlds. In what I am going to call lovely earth, he didn't <laughs> call it that because he was a serious chap from Cambridge. Everything is delightful. So you have nice hills, like majestic mountains, lovely smelling flowers. I don't know, what else is on, on lovely earth? A deer frolicking. Yes. Um, fluorescent sunsets, and it's not because everything is on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Things like that. And everything is in the right proportion and agrees with each other. He actually says nothing jars against each other, which I think is mm-hmm. wonderful. So when in I'm... Lord of the Rings terms, this is the Shire. Exactly, mm-hmm. the Shire. Yeah. And then you have shit her earth, like what I'm calling shit earth because he wouldn't say that, which I don't know what it would be in Lord of the Rings terms. It would be the Shire after it gets destroyed at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Spoilers! <laughs> Like, I've only seen half the first film. And whose fault is that? The films. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact. I saw the first half of the first um, film, uh, the first Lord of the Rings film. And um, so I got to the point where they all kind of got together and formed the... Fellowship of the Ring. Ring Collective. And... (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a bunch of hippies all about jewelry, and um, and then you know, and then it stops because it stops, and I was like, "That's a weird ending of a movie." And you were like, "That's just the first disc." <laughs> I was like, "Fuck this! I'm out of here." <laughs> I just, I just couldn't bear people just like they just look so lost all the time which just i can't yeah well you would be lost if you had to bring a uh, an item of unimaginable power across middle earth hey yeah a little sure. bit of a little bit of respect for those hobbits <laughs> hey i think i quite like the fact that hobbits have second breakfast though yeah that's and, and i like the big magician guy <laughs> gandalf yeah, yeah that one yeah. good hat yeah is that, it yeah. does have a hat right oh yeah, yeah. yeah and it is hat. a good hat it's a good hat. Mm. So, so anyway, so then there's shit earth, which is, you know, the shire after it's been yeah. destroyed. Uh, everything is awful and smelly and uh, jars <laughs> against each other. So Moore says, let's say that no human lives in either. Um, which world should we want to exist? So in modern terms, you could also say, what world would you want to create if you mm-hmm. were in a simulation and so on and so forth? Um, well, my my instinct would be I want to create the nice one. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And Moira's like, why? Well, because, I don't know, kind of appeals to me. Uh, yeah, it, I, I, with my judgment on it, I feel like the frolicking deer and the rolling hills and the uh, nature in harmony is, is much more pleasant and everyone gets along. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That way you have both taken his point and pointed towards what's wrong with it. (laughs) What is wrong with it is that that world is beautiful to us as human beings, Mm. right? Because if you imagine that shit earth actually existed somewhere, Mm -hmm. you can imagine a life on that 
world, in that world, would have evolved to adapt to those conditions. Mm. So maybe there would be like some slimy creatures that actually love it when it's smelly. Mm. You know, and I think that frolicking deers are assholes because they <laughs> trample them with their stupid hooves. You know, um, so e- even though it sounds like it's an abstract, objective judgment of beauty, really it is about what we as humans like. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it just seems to me that if you call in aesthetics, it's inevitable to have a point of view. Mm-hmm. because aesthetics is subjective up to a point. You may say there are some things that appeal to most humans, like grass, but then that's just humans, right? Um, what about things that appeal to other uh, creatures? So going back to conservation, right, there is a problem with this way of thinking about the world, which is that that we tend to preserve things that appeal to us anyway, that are beautiful to us, including cute animals. Mm-hmm. Cute animals get more funding. They get more attention. We are we care more if they are not endangered. Mm-hmm. But the point is, what is cute? Okay. So in order to establish once and for all <laughs> what cuteness is, I have decided to use you as the cute meter. As a guinea pig? Yes. Guinea pigs are cute. Yeah, exactly. So, read, uh, readers, listeners, um, one thing you might not know about Ian, that his his bar for cute is famously very low. <laughs> so you can probably put a dead rat in front of him. And no, he's doing a face uh, like that. Sort no, of I, I, not, not a dead one. No. I did see a real rat, the, like yesterday, like on the side of a river, like a London rat. And it was just there doing its thing. And I thought that was pretty cute. Exactly. So this is what we're getting. So I put together a collection of images that you might be pleased to know are free to reuse. So I can put them (laughs) on Instagram and you can see what I'm making Ian look at right now. And I'm going to ask Ian to rate them Mm -hmm. um, on a scale from not cute, Mm -hmm. cute to very cute. Okay. That's the three options. Not cute, cute, and very cute. Very cute. We should say that our Instagram account is at Podcast. So if you want to see these images and see whether you agree with me, which, I don't know. I, I, apparently, I have a famously low bar, so maybe you won't. <laughs> but if you, you can look at them at Podcast on Instagram. Follow us. You'll be delighted by pictures of possibly cute things. And other stuff. We put other stuff there as well. Yeah, there will be more images from this episode as well, because yeah. it's can... about images. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter as well, at WonderCupboard. Correct. So, okay. Let's, let's have a look at these these images then, or photos, if you will. So, first of all, this is a bee. Yes. I think it's really cute. So, it's a bumblebee uh-huh. type thing. I mean, it might not be an actual bumblebee, but it looks like a bumblebee. Mm-hmm. And so it's black and yellow. Yes. And it's very fuzzy and it's all plump yeah. and fuzzy and it's heading towards a flower by the looks of it. I'm going to say... I mean, it's definitely not not cute. It's mm. a choice between cute or very cute. I reckon this one is... I'm going for very cute. 
It's it's super fuzzy. Wow. Okay. It's super fuzzy. It's the fuzzy. Like, see, like I see one of these, I'm terrified because <laughs> I think they're gonna hurt me because I'm gonna accidentally step on them or something because I'm Aww. a clumsy person. Well, yeah, it would hurt if you did that, but you're probably not going to. No. It might. I might find it less cute if this photo wasn't so close in. Well, but as it's quite close, it's quite fuzzy. Okay, next photo. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. Well, there's two animals in here, but I think the main one is the capybara. Yeah. Capybaras are yeah, again very cute. Very cute. So a capybara is 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 the biggest rodent yeah. uh, in the world, the biggest kind of rodent. So they're like big mice or rats, I suppose, but they're like the size of a small dog. And a rat the size of a small dog, ladies and gentlemen. But, but if you look, uh, you should see it though, because like a a rat of unusual size would be scary. Yeah. Um, but this is not an R.O.U.S. This is uh, an adorable capybara, and they like to have baths. Oh, I should be judging it on the photo alone. Yeah. But they like water and they're just super cute okay so very cute for the capybara um follow-up question is the fact that there's a bird sitting on the capybara's head making it more or less cute more cute yeah because the capybara is just like hey little bird <laughs> take a ride <laughs> so friendly it just seems so so unconcerned okay yes next photo okay very cute again <laughs> this is a dog with a banana peel on its head um actually I think it's less cute for having a banana on it. Right. Because I think largely in part because I hate bananas. That's true. So I just that but that dog's going to be a bit banana-y. Mm. I'm downgrading it to cute. Okay. If it didn't have the banana on its head, it would be very cute. I was interested in this interplay yeah. between But I mean that's a very personal reaction I'm having there. Yeah. But it is a cute dog. Good. Okay, next one. Um also May I add, I think what makes it quite cute is the fact that he doesn't know why he has a banana on his no, head. No, he has no idea. But, but he's got the look in his eye like, I will do this for you because mm. I love you. Yeah. And that's cute. Yeah. I'm polluting the, the sample now. I'm just putting yeah. my ideas. <laughs> next. This is not a double-blind experiment. <laughs> no. um, next one. Oh, okay, it's a tiny, like, I don't know what is it. It's a rat. It's a rat. Okay, well... He's super Taxonomically, cute. it's all right. The way this... He looks a little bit like a gerbil, yeah. the way this photo is, is framed. I'm going to go with cute on that one. The problem with rats, they're cute until you see their tails. Their tails are not cute. Mm -hmm. So just cute on that one. Mm -hmm. Okay, next photo. Next photo. Okay, that's a shoe. Yeah. That's just a dirty shoe. Yeah. That's not cute. Was that's this the control? Basically, yes. Okay. I was like, okay, if... If he thinks there's something cute with that, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to call it off. Yeah, not cute. Next not one. cute. Snake. Ah, this is a difficult one. That one is kind of cute. He's got he's a little little green snake on a branch. And he's got like a big eye. Yeah. And he's got a little, I don't know. Yeah, okay, I'm going to go with cute. Cool. Not very cute, but cute. So he's as cute as the dog with the banana on his head. Well, I mean, okay, there are limitations in the scale you've offered me here. But yeah, I mean, if this snake had a banana on its head, it would be not cute. Cool. Put it that way. Okay. Oh, okay. Now this is a looks like a tarantula or something like that. It's a spider. Mm -hmm. This one is not cute. It's no. got at least four eyes. It's not cute. I thought the big eyes were kind of cute. I 
if it had, if it had two of them, it probably would be. <laughs> but because there's four, not so much a fan. Not so cute. So not cute. Last one. Last one. The yellow eye penguin. You've managed to find a penguin which is not cute. Yeah. That's quite impressive. Hmm. Because um, it, it sort of looks... This penguin looks like a sort of a a man in his 80s that's not taking very good care of himself. <laughs> it's a bit tragic to look at this penguin. Yeah. And it looks like it needs a haircut and, like, maybe some product to to just bring that hair. It's all sticking a bit out the back. So I'm going to go with, incredibly, I'm going to go with not cute cool. on this one. Cool. But if I saw it waddling, maybe. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, good selection. Thank you. Uh, I feel like this cleared things up in terms yeah. of uh, cutology. Okay. Speaking of which, well, we talked to an expert, so let's just hear what they have to say. Simon Watt, everyone. Wonder Cupboard. Hello, Simon. Welcome to Wonder Cupboard. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit for our listeners? Oh, that's near impossible. I've got one of those things which people call it a portfolio career, though I kind of think of it as kind of failing in many directions simultaneously. <laughs> Can I state for the record that Simon was rubbing his head while re- responding in frustration? So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just confusing, isn't it? I suppose fundamentally I'm a biologist, and I say that because that's my background and my love, but my actual job has always been talking about it rather than doing it. So it's kind of biology and science goes in and then arty stuff kind of comes out. Now that arty stuff can vary, like from more formal documentaries, like some of your listeners might know Inside Nature's Giants or The Elephant Life After Death or Wild Cities. Um, but can also end up doing stupid things like stand-up comedy, which is just a hobby that got out of hand, you know. So in terms of conservation, what makes something beautiful and what makes something disgusting? Well, it's probably down to our individual tastes, partly, but there is there's a thing known as the kinder schema, which pretty much means that we like stuff that looks a bit like babies. Uh, we've evolved to be such caring, wonderful, maternal and paternal creatures that we don't kill our own children, and we don't eat them, we don't have any cannibalism as much in the way that many other species out there do. But if you think of something like a Komodo dragon, a Komodo dragon's babies can climb trees, mum can't. That's how it avoids eating them. In our cases, <laughs> we look at them and think they're kind of cute and sweet. Mm. So because we've got this long childhood and because we're very caring, we're very, very orientated to looking after young ones. And this means we are predisposed to loving those features of a bit podginess, um, little button noses, big eyes, big heads, that kind of thing. And there's many animals out there which really can kind of subvert that. So if you're fluffy, you've got that kind of pudgy look automatically because of your fur. If you're something like, as you say, a sloth, arguably, or something like a slow loris, you've got those massive eyes. And it's just everything we like turned up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the way that some people can look at Jessica Rabbit, the cartoon, and find it attractive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am it's guilty the same of that. But you see what I mean? It's, it's, Jessica Rabbit is kind of drawn to try and be more feminine than, than female. And yeah. many of these animals are arguably more baby than babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting how that works between species as well, doesn't it? Like, it's almost yeah. as, as if we were geared towards taking care of 
uh, babies of other species as well, which I think is a huge mystery. Like, why does that happen? Well, there's an even argument that this is part of what happened with domestication. So one yeah. of the reasons why uh, dogs basically look a bit like baby wolves we've selected for these traits and these traits are probably also perhaps linked to things a bit like docility you know these are the dogs that didn't bite yeah fundamentally yeah shall we talk about the ugly animal preservation society yeah obviously it's a comedy thing but i assume there's also some kind of it's meaningful for you right i suppose it's the place where some of my interests really started to overlap um mm. i've always been telling all of my mates and in a pub or something about weird biology and I just wanted to tell more people about it on stage and it was it was really born out of a little bit of the sort of frustration of I was doing a book tour for um, one of my books that, that came out about general science and people were always asking that kind of age-old question of what is your favorite species and then I'd start telling them about some really cool ants and I could watch them kind of glaze over <laughs> and then spend about the next 10 minutes ranting at them about how boring and conservative they are and what they like and how they only love the lovely cute pandas and the ickle fluffy mammals basically the the muso of the biology world well it, it really annoyed me they're just way but then also of course as soon as i started looking into it this is a legitimate problem and yeah. sure enough if you're a mammal you're way more likely to have conservation money spent on you you're more likely to be researched that you can even understand the problem and we are basically myopic as a species not even applies to conservation so in the same way that i thought okay everybody knows the panda we need an anti-panda <laughs> so i launched this campaign and it went viral and i'm talking like proper herpes during a freshers week viral you know <laughs> we, 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 and that was the whole point was i just was trying to get people to find the kind of anti-panda looking for a more aesthetically challenged mascot yeah. And sure enough, back this was been been about 2013. Uh, we went online, people voted en masse, and officially now the ugliest animal in the world is the blobfish. Democracy has happened. I mean, we could describe the blobfish. We're going to put a photo on our Instagram for everyone's delectation. Well, the name says it all, doesn't it, really? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's what it sounds it's like. It's very blobby. It's on the front of the Ugly Animals book. Uh, yeah, I do feel like I'm shortchanging it slightly because um, I think that everybody forgets whenever they look at that photo is that that's a dead blobfish and so of course it's not looking its best <laughs> in the water they look a bit more like a rugby ball but they'd they'd never be exactly what you'd categorize as hunky no. and difficult to taxidermy as well yes so so what is your favorite ugly animal i mean that's the people have spoken and elected the blobfish but what is your personal preference well, for, for our gigs technically i'm supposed to remain a little bit impartial because right the idea is that our gigs, as we tour around, we get people to come and uh, elect their own ugly animal mascot at each gig. So every town that we go to ends up having a mascot. Okay. But this also means that the comedians who come on board, they are the ones who are bringing the animals. And I just get to talk a bit more in general. However, yes. uh, one of the kind of side projects that came out of this was a, a solo show because I basically accidentally written an hour's worth of material myself. So I kind of put it all into one big beast Mm. Um, which I call my frogs and friends. So I think probably the frogs, because well, for two reasons, they're really cute, but because they're a bit squishy and a bit, you know, the moisture, basically. But they're also the most endangered group of vertebrates on the planet. Like two thirds of all frogs are in decline, like kind of half of all the amphibians. 
I so no actually, I oh yeah, exactly. Now, many people wouldn't, mm. and and I kind of have an ambition, I suppose, that if I keep doing this long enough, and it's been eight years now, then eventually I'm just going to kind of work my way through all the hideous taxa. <laughs> so if I'm going to pick my personal favourite, I think it would either be I've got I've got a massive placard saying "Save the Slug," so it might be the Canadian blue grey tail dropper slug, okay. which for a start Smurf Smurf blue. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> What's even better is if you scare it, its bum drops off. <laughs> yeah. oh, no. That's a good starting point. So does it regrow one? How does it work yeah, out? Yeah. It regrows exactly. it. It regrows it. The whole point is it's leaving its tail behind. So whatever is chasing it will stop and eat the tail where the slug can then, you know, leg it or really? leg it as much as the window legs can, you know, run away. I mean, that's gross kind of and resilient. Well, that's all I've ever wanted from life. I thought yeah, if I exactly. could be resilient as well as gross, I've, I've landed. <laughs> Probably slugs and frogs, and then there's a ton of insects, which I think are amazing. Yeah. I'm still yeah. very, very fond of ants. Yeah, that's cool. I have a personal complaint. I've looked through the results of your uh, democratic um, elections of uh, animals in various places, and one of them is the sloth. So, yeah. the, according to Wikipedia, which is my authority to uh, source for this. Um, in the animal, the ugly animal for Bristol and Cheltenham is the three-toed sloth, which is actually one of the cutest animals ever. Like, it also, it's that's become sort of a, a, a cute icon. Like, you can get anything sloth-shaped on Etsy. So I was just kind of wondering how that happened. I suppose for, there's kind of actually two places where that's going to happen. So that's, that's one of them. And many people think that sloths are, are cute. But you do yeah. have to remember this is an animal that doesn't outrun algae. You know, it grows all over it. You probably don't want hugging onto you in many ways. I would. I suppose, <laughs> here's the thing. These are, these are wonderful creatures, but they have to be ugly to somebody's eyes. Our rules are a little bit vague. So mm. they, they have to be in some way endangered and they have to be in some way ugly. If you can justify why it's ugly, then that's up to you. I, I think ugly is in the eye of the beholder just like mm-hmm. beauty. Um, but it's not the only one, because officially, and this is a real shocker, officially the second ugliest animal on the planet via our pool is the kakapo. Now, do you even know what a kakapo is? No, I, I need to Google kakapo, it probably. But yeah. I can't remember what it is. Well, if you get a chance to look one up, yeah, it's not ugly. It really is not ugly. It's a, <laughs> it's a parrot. But Steve Mould, who'd been championing it, he made the rather excellent point, I thought, that it's the world's only flightless parrot. Ergo, it's a rubbish parrot. <laughs> That's but not an aesthetic is, judgment, though. Well, it, it, he, it's, it's up to him. I told you, ugly can be judged in many, many guises. Maybe it's internal ugliness, you know, instead <laughs> of inner beauty. But further to this, the reason it's the second ugliest animal on the planet is because basically I am massive in New Zealand, which is of no practical use to me whatsoever. <laughs> because people in New Zealand were just so pleased that anybody was talking about one of their endangered birds Aww. that they voted en masse. We got on all their newspapers and things again. Fantastic. But furthermore, from this, as is the case for the poll as a whole, uh, I got genuine hate mail. I've had so many complaints, people saying I shouldn't call any animal ugly or that the cacapo is not ugly. There was, there was one really long email properly ranting about how, how dare I make this imperialistic decision of what is an ugly or not ugly <laughs> in our country. What was the most uh, controversial choice that uh, people have made? So the one that oh. got more, more hate mail, I assume, like. Well, the, the two, there's two really big sets. There's the Kakapo one, and um, I didn't help myself because I wrote to the person and tried to explain why I did this. And the reason I did it is because I'm applying the laws of satire to conservation. 
yeah. as far as I'm concerned, we should make jokes about we, we make jokes about politics because politics matters. Yeah. So I thought we should make jokes about conservation because conservation matters. And I told him this, and then I ended it saying, look, I never intended to offend any Australians. Now, whether or not he got the joke <laughs> is a very different matter. But the thing is, it's also being done tongue-in-cheek because yeah. I, this has to be something we have to be able to talk about. Mm. I mean, otherwise, if I wasn't doing this for comedy, being interested in conservation is just opening the newspaper to see what's died today. Yeah. You can switch off from these messages. So I'm trying to sweep the pill by making it less sincere i suppose mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if nothing else sincerity is being done by a thousand and one fantastic organizations like real conservationists out there somebody taking the mickey every so often it only helps rather than hinders i think mm -hmm. yeah agreed you've definitely you and the other comedians who've joined you have definitely made people laugh have you seen serious progress as a result of doing the Ugly Animal Preservation Society work? Yes, uh, because I still, okay, I get a fair whack of hate mail, but I also still get people who even have just seen like our very old videos now getting in touch to saying, how can I help a bobfish? Mm -hmm. So in the most direct way, I'm not a charity, but I can direct these people to charities I like. And there's groups out there like, Flora and Fauna International do very good research. The World Land Trust, I'm, I'm one of their ambassadors, and they do a very habitat-focused thing. And this is the case for so many of these things. If you look after where the habitat is, you look after all the animals and things that live there. Mm -hmm. They go very direct approach and buy land. You've got On the Edge Conservation, who work with, with the EDGE group, and, and EDGE stands for Evolutionarily Distinct, Globally Endangered. And these are the animals out there that are the most unique because they've got the least number of cousins. Mm. And they also just so happen to be nearly all the animals I spend nearly all my time talking about. Okay. So, for a start, we've been able to raise some money for some of these places. If people get in touch with me trying to donate, because that does happen, I also then point them through to these places. But in a more indirect way, um, I know of at least one PhD, which is a result of somebody mentioning something in our one of our gigs. They've gone off. That's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna study that. They were looking okay. into the beaver beetle in um, Hampshire, I think it is, and in locally endangered dung beetle. Oh, I thought of another one. Yeah, in in Bulgaria in Sofia, we had our first gig not in English. Uh -huh. And their mascot was the, the griffin vulture. And the griffin vulture is not endangered, endangered, but it's locally endangered in that area. But every one of our gigs also became an excuse for a press release. That's the reason why I guess we got so well known. Yeah. It's something ludicrous, but it's still something worth comment. <laughs> and that's why we got on Mock the Week, for crying out loud, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so this means that the, the people who lived in, in Bulgaria, in that part of the world, they, they got to see more about this vulture than they had. And the local vulture charity got more press than they had in their entire existence the very next day. I was being stupid about it. They weren't. Mm. So being able to kind of point to the right people really helps. I guess it, it, it works as well because the vast majority of comedians are also nerds. And so this helps I don't know what tap into that side. Of, <laughs> it also helps them tap into their nerdy side, I think, I think uh, and give them an outlet for that. It works in that. For me, well. I, I always remember something um, I heard Reginald D. Hunter saying once that uh, the most important thing in comedy isn't to be funny, it's to be interesting. Mm. And if we're talking about these animals, it's definitely also always interesting. That's great. And so and uh, how else can people catch up with you, keep in touch? You mentioned your frog show. Oh, well, the best bets. Follow me on Twitter and, and you'll, they'll find what else I'm doing. I do sort of sincere biology as well. Like I've just... Um, 
completed a web series for Greenpeace where me and uh, Sophie Juker, actually another comic car, it's a kind of studio-based show showing a lot of the great footage that they've filmed in their pole-to-pole expedition. They basically have taken their ships, the Arctic Sunrise and Esperanza, all the way from the North Pole to the Antarctic. And along the way, they've had tons of scientists on board gathering information, going to these places that they might not have access to. Mm. So there's stuff like that going on constantly. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Simon. Oh, thank you. It's been uh, lovely talking to you. So, um, I'm looking forward to getting out of the cupboard. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. So that's Simon. His podcast is Level Up Human. It's really funny. It's really interesting. They they brainstorm with guests and comedians how to improve the human race. It's really, really good. Have a listen. While we're talking podcasts, this is a podcast as well. Yeah, it is. And if you were to go onto iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to us and rate us five stars, it has to be five. Well, yeah, otherwise, I mean, what are on, you doing? Right. Uh, that would be really, really helpful to us. It helps us spread the word. And if we spread the word, we can make more of these. So if you're enjoying it, a wonderful thing you could do for us would be to subscribe and to rate us and leave us a review. And maybe we'll give you a shout out. I mean, that's fame. If ever there was fame. (laughs) (laughs) So where were we? So as we were discussing just now with Simon, (laughs) representing nature as beautiful is not an innocent operation. It can lead to harm. Think about nature documentaries. They depict mostly mammals. There are actual studies that have been done about this. Um, who are doing exciting things like chasing each other and diving and jumping. Well, really, A, most of the animal kingdom is made of insects, and B, animals spend as much time as possible not doing anything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, I I understand that as well. (laughs) (laughs) I really relate to that. Uh, Do you do it for um, reasons of energy preservation? It is for survival, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you can escape predators and reproduce um, more easily when you're not sleeping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, in fact, on this point, I, I remember seeing a movie called Microcosmos when I was a child, mm-hmm. which was a movie that attempted to make insects as beautiful and majestic as mammals that you normally see in nature documentaries. I thought it was fascinating at the time. It had like classical music in the background. Everything was really grand. Mm -hmm. And so the the push to make it look like mammals chasing each other was still there, which they managed up to a point. Um, And that point was where you saw an image of two slugs mating. Oh, no. So I saw this at the (laughs) cinema. So, you know, as a child. So it was... So the way slugs mate, they kind of so they're they're hermaphrodite. So they have they kind of have to meet in at different points. If you uh-huh. see what I mean. So basically, it was like one slug coming from one giant slug coming from one side of the screen, the other one from the other side <laughs> of the screen, and then kind of like they're going up a bit, like you know, like praying hands, like okay, you know, yeah. imagine like your yeah. hands when they're praying, mm-hmm. like that, and all to the sound of what I remember as basically Wagner, like. Da, 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 da. 
And I have to say, <laughs> I remember that as a low-key trauma in my childhood. <laughs> I can imagine. It sounds, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so, you know, mixed results is my point. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not even something that happened only in recent times. There is a historical relationship between the representation of nature and the notion of objectivity. For example, if we just look at what is normally called the modern period, so that's from the like 17th century onwards, in the West, we'll see that in the 18th century, the way you would represent nature was by following an ideal of truth to nature. You can see this in illustrations of science books at the time. So truth to nature means that instead of representing an individual, say a specific rhino, you would represent what you thought was the perfect specimen of rhino. In this case, the depiction of rhinos in Europe actually couldn't correspond to any possible existing rhino because features of rhinos from different species and living in different places were bunched up together in trying to represent the perfect rhino because they were not seen as different species. Um, and so they were really odd. They had like scales, they had horns on their shoulders. Really odd representation of rhinos are bizarre. And some of them had become really famous because Jura, um, who was a famous um, Fleming p- painter, had painted them. And this even influenced taxonomy because people were basing their studies on, on these, mm. right? Like, these were scientific illustrations. And that's something that, interestingly enough, still happens in nature documentaries and it happens a lot. One of the tricks of the trade in documentary production is to get footage of different individual animals and then edit it together so it looks like it's the same individual or the same family or Mm -hmm. group of animals. Some images of details are shot in zoos even. Um, And that's something, you know, that the BBC does. It's not... Yeah, there 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 was a controversy a few years ago about a polar bear. Mm. They had footage of a polar bear being born Mm. and then it was revealed that it was done in controlled conditions effectively it was snow and ice but in a zoo or something like similar to it and people were up in arms about it Mm. but also they wouldn't have been able to do it for real in the wild it's tricky yeah it's tricky and like you know they have limited budget and what if you've taken your camera somewhere and all these animals are doing is sleeping for the whole time mm. right you, you need to get something going like some some documentary filmmakers even use bait to attract predators and stuff like that yeah mm. it's that's the thing that the medium influences the content at that point because it's a it's supposed to be a spectacle and the mere fact of turning nature into a spectacle means that these tricks are somewhat necessary mm. and a spectacle in 42 minutes yeah so going back to the 1700s They also used to concoct human skeletons this way, the ones that appeared in anatomical tables. There was this Professor Bernard Siegfried Albinus, which was Professor of Anatomy and Surgery at the University of Leiden at the time, that had devised a method to make sure that his illustrator got it right and was not influenced by, you know, menial considerations such as perspective um, (laughs) when drawing his skeletons. So the method was in in two steps. So first, the illustrator would draw a skeleton from a distance just to get the general shape of it. And then each detail was filled in by looking close up at the best 
specimens of each bone that came from different skeletons. So the result was this perfect skeleton that they actually called um, homo perfectus, which just means perfect human being. Mm -hmm. One thing that I was wondering about when I read this was, would that skeleton even work? Like, if that skeleton was a real human being, probably not, because there are trade-offs in the way, you know, bones develop and that kind of thing. So it was just like this fantasy human being, essentially. Well, I mean, I've seen the documentary The Fifth Element, (laughs) uh, which does feature the perfect human, uh, as played Mm. by uh, Mila Jovovich. Yeah. Doing her best. Yeah. And, I mean, she can do flips and stuff, so it sounds... You know, logical to me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I like um, your sources are just better than mine sometimes. Yeah. 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 Um, So going back to what I know best, when Albinus commissioned his illustrator, whose name was Jan Vandela, who was um, a Dutch illustrator and engraver, to draw one of these skeletons, he went, all right, but you know what? In order to get the light right, this needs a background. And Albinus went, okay, like, whatever. You have made my skeleton, I just go with the skeleton, do what I want with the background. So what Vandana did was drawing a rhino in the background. <laughs> it's a striking image. We're going to put that on Instagram as well. But this time, it was a real rhino. Ah. So he actually made a portrait of the rhino Clara, who was <laughs> um, at a zoo, a local zoo. And that might be the first depiction in the West of a rhino that is actually accurate huh. because it is a portrait of Clara de Reino. How interesting. So on on this inaccurate portrait of a human skeleton, we ended up getting an accurate portrayal of a rhino. Yeah. And there is there are interpretations. Well, there's one interpretation that says that that was Jan van der going, see, this is how you depict yeah. specimens. What you're doing is silly. This is what you do. So when photography became available for this kind of job, it was preferred not because it was more accurate, which it actually wasn't because photography wasn't up to scratch when it was first used in this context, but because it was thought to eliminate the mediation of a person. No human to make mistakes in the middle, just accurately representing the truth. Exactly. And there was no cherry picking of bones either. Mm -hmm. It was just like what it was, right? Because before, what you had in in the way of access to true reality was just an abstraction because there was no such thing as portraying true reality directly. Well, now you're like, okay, we've got a machine. Let's let the machine do its work. So the phenomenon of finding the depiction made by a machine inherently trustworthy and not influenced by values or personal judgment is called mechanical objectivity. And this is something that once you know about it, you see it everywhere because mechanical objectivity is still everywhere. So for instance, when people see an fMRI, so that is a representation of um, a brain in activity, mm-hmm. that is, um, you know, is the ones that you see that look like uh, like grainy photos with bits of coloured... Cauliflower. Cauliflower, yes. Yeah. Yeah, those ones. If people see one of those images, they are more likely to trust the results of whatever study features it. So there are studies about this. 
And that is despite the fact that an fMRI is not a photograph. It uses a, magnet it uses a magnetic field in order to detect where blood flows in the brain hmm. and uses the way hemoglobin behaves magnetically to achieve that. It's not a photograph. It's got nothing to do with images, but it feels like an image. It feels like you're seeing hmm. what the brain is doing. Also, brains don't look like that. I don't know if people have ever seen a brain. Brains actually look like sludge um, <laughs> and they're kind of grayish and very tiny. They're very disappointing. Um, <laughs> Um, I've been disappointed by a few brains in my time <laughs> as well. But generally ones inside people's heads that can't be seen. <laughs> so this phenomenon of a machine doing something is called technological mediation. Tech doesn't just sit there. It does things. And one of the things it does is to give us the impression of objectivity through mechanical objectivity even if that objectivity isn't there? Well, the point is, what is objectivity at this point, right? Mm -hmm. So we may think that objectivity is that, is just that, is the fact that the machine shows us a representation of whatever object and we know exactly what goes on in the machine and objectivity is being aware of the whole process. Or you can say that we haven't reached objectivity in order to reach objectivity, we need to make machines as value-free as possible and to have a, as direct a contact with reality as possible. It's very tricky to define objectivity. Other place where mechanical objectivity is used is in graphs. So that represent data. Data representation is like the paradise of mechanical objectivity. You see a graph or any other data representation and you're like, well, that graph is generated directly by data. So that means that it conveys objective information. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, obviously, data needs to be gathered in a certain way, and humans gather it, and then they analyze it, and then they make the graph, and then they make the representation in a certain way as well, and they decide what data matters and what data doesn't. So, so at every single step in this process, there's an opportunity to get something wrong or to put a particular spin on it. Yeah, or to make choices, because we have to make choices. We can't represent everything, right? But still, mechanical objectivity means that we have this sort of illusion or desire because we really do want to know things and we do know some things. I'm not saying we don't know anything and everything is doctored by evil scientists. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a human influence in the representation of reality and machines do not eliminate that. Another example, depictions of galaxies. You probably already know that galaxies are not like psychedelic alien dense floors. <laughs> so, um, but you know, just worth reminding everyone. If you look up cosmic latte, you will see what the average color of the universe is. And it is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it's a, just a light brown. A light, it's basically, so if you live in London, that's probably the colour of every flat you have rented in your life. Okay. <laughs> it's landlord cream. Okay. Right? <laughs> and, you know, there's the fact that images from space are not actual photographs. I think that will blow the mind of yeah. a few people listening. Yeah. 
I'm not talking about all of them. Some of them are photographs. So let's talk about like Hubble telescope, mm-hmm. for instance. I think it's a good it's a good case for this. Yeah. So the Hubble telescope is has been orbiting Earth since the 90s, right? It's as big as a school bus or two school buses, something like that. It's not massive. Um, and what it does is it's it, not sorry, it's not full of children, is it? Um, not that I know of. Okay, phew. Um, <laughs> and also, if it had been full of children when it went up, they would be basically our age right now. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> that's, that's a depressing <laughs> upbringing. Um, or very exciting. I don't know. Mm. So, Hubble Telescope does a few things. One of the things that it does is taking photographs, as in, you know, recording um, visual data. Um, within the range of visible light that is visible to humans. But it also records data about infrared and ultraviolet light and so on and so forth. Hubble Telescope has a photo editor who is an astronomer and they would swear that aesthetics have got nothing to do with it, that they're just showing you what space really looks like. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so in order to work out what that means, let's go through the process as described by a NASA photo editor. Okay. I'll put the source at the end. Like, I'm not making this up. What the photo editor gets from Hubble are very bland black and white images. So the range is quite narrow as well. So they actually look a bit greyish. I mean, I like it. They look like like a, a... grunge album <laughs> cover. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of Nirvana's um, uh, EP releases or something. Yes. Yeah. So first they adjust the light so that the contrast is high enough that we can see differences. Mm-hmm. And then they enhance colours that are naturally occurring in space. So using other kinds of data that come from Hubble, they know that like oxygen is in certain places and we know that oxygen is lightly tinged of blue. Okay. So that becomes super blue. Okay. We know that sulfur is lightly tinged of red, so it becomes super red. Hydrogen, also red, but a bit more faint, and so on and so forth. And then they use Photoshop to brighten up these colors. And then in order to differentiate parts of what they're showing more easily, they add bright colors here and there. Also, stars are slightly magenta. So whenever you see stars in these photos, those are magenta because that's enhanced Mm -hmm. in that way, right? Then in the end, the only part that they admit is basically just because it looks good. Because so so far, that was not because it looks good. Um, (laughs) No. (laughs) It's that shadows are adjusted so that some things pop a bit better. Okay. (laughs) Okay, nebulas, show me love. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then NASA releases the photo uh, to the public uh, and social media. (laughs) That is not what you would see if you went to space. But a lot of people think it is Mm -hmm. or something, or at least maybe they don't realize just how much work there is there. And then you see sci-fi TV and films which are based on those images and show people being in space and looking at those things, and it sort of reinforces Mm. that idea. Yeah, 
and and you know and it creates that sense of wonder mm. that's the sublime right mm. that's like uh, my eyes my imagination embodied in my eyes cannot see all that because we only can see light that is in the in our visual range but our our reason can because mm. you know when we know there's oxygen we make it bluer when we where we know there's uh, self will make you more red. So it's like it's seeing with reason in a certain way, mm. right? And the fact that an astronomer is doing this and justifying this as a way to making us see universe as it really is kind of reinforces that idea. I suppose that this also helps. I, I, my assumption is that a scientist, an astronomer looking for something specific would be able to do that with just the black and white. With the grey scale. Like these are not the images they release to the public are not necessarily the ones which are useful to their astronomers doing studies because they if they're just looking for X rays, they would only have the X ray portion of the data coming into the telescope. They wouldn't need a full colour thing. And they do, like they do have all these different versions. Mm. So they get images that emphasize one thing or another. Mm. So that's entirely true, yes. But I suppose that the full color, and I'm going to call them pretty versions, even though. It's not pretty, it's accurate. (laughs) Putting these photos out there, it does promote NASA's work, doesn't it? Mm. And they are a governmental body that needs funding. Mm hmm. And by creating these beautiful images, which are useful in inverted commas, they're more likely to get funding. That's a, that is a conspiracy theory I've outlined there. And I don't know whether it's necessarily true, but it, that must be the case. Oh, that I- if they put these images out, then it helps their yeah. publicity. I'm sure that's fair. And also, you know, people have a love of space and admiration mm. for space. I myself just love space like a 12 year old in in your own words it's like i can understand why people would do that what i find interesting not objectionable as such is the fact that this is all passed as necessary in order to accurately depict something Mm -hmm. right i think that's very interesting feature of western science that you have to justify things in terms of objectivity you can't say you know what? Yes, I made it pretty. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> um, and on that note, shall we do the references? Yeah, let's do the references. <laughs> and now, the references. So this last bit that I just talked about is from an interview with Zoltan Levy, who was the Hubble photo editor at the time. This interview is from 2015. I don't know who's the photo editor now. I think he retired, but I couldn't find the name. But, you know, I don't think things have changed much, especially because Hubble is not serviced anymore by NASA. It's just there. Um, And this interview in particular that I'm going to put on the website is about how he manipulated the images of the Eagle Nebula. It's an image that maybe you don't know what it what it's called, but if you see it, you recognize it. It's a very iconic image. It looks like like high fluffy peaks mm. of of space matter. It's like a big colorful claw. Yeah. In space. Exactly, that's the one. Mm. And and I think it's quite interesting as well how the writer of the actual um 
uh, article with the interview used truth to nature arguments as well because um, they were like, well, this is showing the invisible colors of the universe. It's like saying, <laughs> you know, we're showing you something that is not immediately there to see, but it somewhat is there to see, right? Which I think is quite funny because like, there's no such thing as invisible colors. If it's invisible, it's not a color. Mm. And you know, when I'm color coding my inbox, I'm not showing the invisible colors of meetings. I'm just <laughs> making them recognizable, and that's fine. But anyway, I think it's quite an interesting piece of uh, of science journalism. Then a lot of concepts about objectivity, so truth to nature, mechanical objectivity, and so forth, come from a book called Objectivity by Lorraine Dustin and Peter Gallison, which is an absolute classic in this field. And it, they trace the history of objectivity through images. And it's absolutely beautiful. The little story about the Rhine and so forth comes from a paper that is based on their, on their book and kind of takes it a bit further. The paper was written by Chiara Ambrosia, who is... I wish I could say a colleague of mine, but she's so she's a lecturer in my department, which is uh, SDS department at UCL. Hi, hi, Chiara, if you're listening to this, <laughs> she's wonderful. Uh, and it's called Objectivity and Representative Practices Across Artistic and Scientific Visualization. And then, of course, for Kant, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, May it live long and prosper. <laughs> you can find a whole article about cancer aesthetics. So you can have all that for free. So that's the references. So what have we learned today? Today we've learned that if you realise you're being charged by a rhino, you have a Dutch painter to thank for it. <laughs> Cupboard. <laughs>